0: This is Critical Attitudes, and I'm Nathan Waddell. In this episode, I spoke with Sean Richardson, a PhD student at Nottingham Trent University, where he's supervised by Catherine Clay and Andrew Thacker. Sean's research addresses questions to do with modernity, sexuality, space, and place. A devotee of social media and online research networks, Sean recently set up The Modernist Podcast a monthly discussion of early 20th century art, literature and culture, which has been particularly good at giving a platform to the research of postgraduate scholars. He's also a highly experienced organiser of academic conferences and symposia, with seven such events under his belt to date and more in the pipeline. The series of conferences named Queer Modernisms, which Sean co-organises, will reach its third occasion later this year at the University of Oxford in May 2019. I caught up with Sean earlier this month. It's wonderful to have you here. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Could you say a little bit about where you've come from professionally on the route to your PhD and, you know, how you got where you are now with it? Right. OK, so this is a moment where I'm probably supposed to give some kind of ekphrastic answer
1: about a reaction to a poem. Um, but that's not really how I came into academia. I think my route is slightly different um, to the what is seen as kind of the traditional route. Um, so basically when I joined university as an undergraduate, I didn't know what a PhD was, I didn't know what a master's was, I barely knew what a BA was. I basically come to university because, um, I wanted to keep studying and it was what I was good at at school. Um, and I started doing my BA, got to the end of it, um, realised I loved it and had a lecturer who said to me, uh, you should apply for a scholarship. Um, I didn't know what one was. So I was in kind of the, my third year of undergraduate not knowing what a scholarship was, not knowing what a master's was really. Um, and it was only after I finished that I started to understand what the academic system looks like and what academia is, um, which sounds incredibly naive and it is. But I'm the first person in my family to go to university, so I didn't really have a handle on what anything that I post GCSE. And so from there, I started to work in a university careers department, um, uh, creating opportunities for undergraduates and PhDs to go into kind of work placements. Um, And I saw that lecturer again, her name's Catherine Fleming, she's amazing, and she said, you really need to apply for funding. So I went away and I looked um, and I found a scholarship to Kent to do my master's because there was no way I could afford to do the master's otherwise. Uh, Luckily, I got it. And I did my Masters at Kent with Michael Collins, who is also fantastic, and then I realised that because I had my masters I could apply to do a PhD and that's how I applied to one. So that's kind of how I got onto the PhD. That's how I kind of got into it. It was a system of jumbles and false starts and accidents. And I think I wouldn't really be here if I hadn't had a lot of people saying, You can do this. Um practically it's it's possible. So that's kind of how I got into The And I think that's how I now see the academy. I have a very strange kind of job-focused look at it. Um, I've come from working in kind of student careers um, and helping PhDs get jobs post-PhD. So I think I've come into the PhD with a very strange mindset of seeing it as a job rather than as a degree, but also seeing the potential outside of just doing kind of
0: straight academic things because I've seen other people just do that and then kind of falter at the end yeah I mean that's fascinating to me that that sense of viewing it in a certain way and as you say as a job will radically determine how you approach matters has that been the case has that really as far as you're aware anyway because of course you've only lived your life once so you don't know but do you think that it's changed the way you approach things sort of day to day
1: yeah so I'm really interested in the title of this podcast in terms of being called critical attitudes um and I'm just really fascinated by what that actually means in terms of uh, a wider question of what does it mean to have a critical attitude Um, and I think it has definitely really shaped how I've approached the PhD because I think for me seeing the PhD as a job a large part of my time has been trying to expand my CV in a number of different ways in order to ensure that when I finish the PhD I can get a stable job of some kind. I think we're told that academia is a vocation. We're told uh, largely that it's this kind of really wonderful, magical place where you can go and talk about whatever you want and have really deep discussions, which partly is true, but partly isn't true, actually. And especially now, um, you know... um, Ginsburg said that I've seen the greatest minds of my generation ruined and I would finish that sentence with the kind of less sexy by the research excellence framework and by the teaching excellence framework. I've also seen the greatest minds of my generation ruined by the by precarity. So it's it's for me, I've approached the PhD in a different way in that I want to learn, I want to deepen my critical faculties. I think also I want to have a critical attitude towards the PhD itself. What does that mean for me? Uh, As a young person who has no savings, who has nothing to fall back on, um, as a young person who wants to kind of build a career and doesn't have any connections to rely on. As a young person who, you know, if I moved home, I I would be living in a a shared room with my brother um, because we don't have tons of space in my house. So for me, it's about I think I've got a critical attitude towards the PhD in that. I see it as a job, I don't just see it as a kind of learning opportunity or a chance to show off my knowledge, I I want to gain skills from it, I want to develop skills from it, and I think partly that stems from the neuroses I have around not having anything else to do afterwards, if I don't build these skills then I'm going to fall flat on my face.
0: It is a very strange animal doing a PhD because as you've implied really, you, you kind of exist in this limbo state you're, you you are making progress of a, of a sort you know all things being equal you're you're developing your research you're getting towards the end of the phd but very often and for most people there is a sort of absolute horizon there beyond which it can be very difficult to peer it's very hard to know what lies beyond it i mean it, it strikes me and and i want to ask you a few more questions about this a bit later that that one of the things that you've managed to do with this attitude this critical attitude is develop your profile on multiple fronts and that that seems to be very generative. Um, Before we get to that, though, I wanted to ask you, what is the subject of your PhD? You mentioned the title earlier, you said Queer Modernist Geographies, is that right? Yes, so my PhD is in Queer Modernist Geographies, which is a heavily loaded term
1: that generates many questions. But to strip it down to its essential elements, um, my project intellectually stems from Mal Malkowitz's work on the new modernist studies. And in their essay on new modernist studies, they use the watchword of expansion, which has lots of different remits. We have kind of the chronological expansion of David James's kind of late modernism and meta modernism. We have the kind of high low expansion um, of looking at different kind of cultural artifacts and what is modernism. Um, I'm thinking here of Andrew Thacker, my supervisor's work on the bookstore. Um, And we also have the very kind of more obvious one of um, space and geography and looking at expansive modernist geographies. Um, And this has taken many different shapes. We've got Scott McCracken looking at kind of um, urban spaces. We have Susan Sanford Friedman panning out and looking at a wider planetary space. Uh, We have kind of Laura Winkle looking at geomodernisms. Um, and naturally, it's lent itself to some identity based spaces as well. So, people have been looking at uh, modernism space and class. What does kind of a feminist modernist space look like? Or what does modernist space look like for women? Such as the flanus instead of the flaneur. Um, I fold into that and look at what does modernist space look like when we queer it? Or what does modernist space look like for the sexual lens? In particular, I'm looking at the development of the idea of sexual orientation, which is a slightly presentist phrase. But uh, it buys into the idea that the sexual sciences in the late 19th and early 20th century crystallize and concretize sexual identity as a form of identity rather than as an act. So I'm thinking of the transmission from Oscar Wilde's um, trial under kind of gross indecency moving on to um, the development of homosexuality as an identity. What does it mean for sexual orientation to develop? in the modernist era and how does that affect modernist space? The project's called A Queer Orientation and I'm wondering what does it mean to be oriented? It comes out of this kind of Sarah Ahmed questioning of what does orientation mean when we're oriented towards certain people and away from others and when that's kind of really, really hammered home by the judicial system, by psychological... kind of systems such as asylums and by the sexual sciences how does that affect our navigation with the world how does that affect our interactions in the
0: world and how does that affect how we are spatially in the world that's a very capacious full answer um i mean do you, as far as you can tell at the moment what are you willing to share any of the answers to those questions that you've so eloquently formulated? Yeah of course, so I can tell you about
1: this. Um, so my PhD has four chapters um, and it's an authorial study um, and I have my introduction and my conclusion of course as well. So I look at different kinds of space and how different kinds of space are generated um, through the sexual sciences in modernist literature. The authors I look at Orion Forster, the poet HD, uh, Christopher Isherwood and a lesser known author called Catherine Burdekin who's fantastic and you should read if you haven't already. My first chapter looks at The legacy of Oscar Wilde's uh, jailing um, in the work of uh, Ian Forster and specifically his novel Morris. Um, I look at how gay space is created in the early 20th century through kind of systems of panic um, and through the legislation of homosexual acts. So, what does it mean for there to be a very famous literary homosexual? Um, legal case for someone who's coming slightly after and writing a homosexual novel. How can this novel grapple with questions of sexuality and how can the gay characters of this novel exist? Which spaces can they exist within? In this chapter I argue that um, there's a high level of secrecy to um, Morris which is kind of encoded in the spaces that the characters can move through. They're constantly hidden, they're in houses and behind closed doors in a series of closets. Then I move on to H.D., I check out um, her relationship to Freud, and I argue that Freud and H.D.'s relationship is incredibly important to a couple of her short stories, uh, Spatialities, in that uh, they mirror the geographies of her mind which they explored under his analysis, specifically thinking about H.D.'s discussion of her bisexuality and how that becomes spatially constructed as a landscape which she can explore with Freud, um, and like the architecture of her mind. Then I move on to Catherine Bedekin, and I think about the question of utopia. What would a queer utopia look like? And I think about the notion of eugenics. Um, Havelock Ellis, um, who uh, came up with many theories of inversion, was also a massive proponent of eugenics. And what does it mean for someone to be in dialogue with someone who is helping them discover their queer identity, but at the same time is proposing eugenics? And so I think about Catherine Berdekin's utopia as deeply flawed and deeply eugenic in nature and I think about how the queer subject is perhaps necessarily white in sexual sciences following on from work by Siobhan Somerville and Paul Edwards and finally I look at Christopher Isherwood and the integral collapse of queer modernism. I look at the second world war and how the burgeoning kind of spatial and sexual tensions of the second world war cause the queer modernist space to fall apart entirely, how it can't keep existing, how um, there has to be what Ranciere calls a symbolic rupture in that the Second World War tears up Um, our knowledge is of kind of space it radically moves the geographies of uh, Europe around especially Um, it generates new forms of sexual engagement such as trench warfare and homosexual kind of acts there and then modernism as well starts to falter and fall apart under the second world war so that's kind
0: of what I'm looking at. One of the key words that you mentioned as you were talking about all of that for me was dialogue and in addition to your doctoral work in addition to the to the to the work you've been doing for the phd itself a very important outlet it seems to me for your activity has been the sequence of conferences that you've co-organized called queer Mm modernism could you say a little bit about how those conferences came about and the sort of work that's gone into organizing them yeah of course so earlier
1: on you asked about how i got into my phd and i would say that it's it's funny because my introduction to queer theory was being called a faggot at high school. So it's really interesting in that sense that my interest in queer theory is stemmed from feeling. So by the time I got round to reading kind of Cedric's Between Men, she expressed things that I already felt. I might not have known how to express them, but but if you go to an all boys rugby Catholic school and you're the only openly gay person there then you already know that homosexual kind of panic structures male-male relationships. So my interest has always been in kind of queer literature um, and kind of what queer means. And I came to modernism a bit later. So it was really important to me when I um, started the PhD to fuse these things together and create a dialogue around queer modernism and what that means. The other reason it's important to me is intellectually, um, because... We've had a really, really good body of work on gay and lesbian modernism. But myself, Rio Lloyd, and Jesse, who are my co-organisers, really want to kind of challenge the boundaries of modernist sexuality by asking what a queer lens can offer us uh, by generating new dialogues that push past kind of the terms gay and lesbian and ask what what what's in the cracks um, of kind of those terms, what falls between, and what what's beyond that. And I think that the conference series has been really useful in generating um, a community, a sense of community uh, for younger scholars especially who are working within the kind of queer modernist field. Uh, We've had people from all over the world, from um, Asia, North America, South America and all over Europe, and it's been useful in kind of building a network of scholars who are working on this nascent uh, intersection of queer studies and modernist studies, which is kind of developing out of and kind of mothered and fathered by
0: um, gay and lesbian modernist studies another word that seemed to be very important there as you were talking about that was community having sort of watched this network from afar I haven't unfortunately been able to get to any of the conferences yet due to you know family commitments and work commitments but I'm hoping to but nevertheless watching it from afar has it's been very impressive seeing especially on twitter actually you know for those of us who are remote from it geographically um, the, the sheer quantity of connections that you're enabling. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing it live in the flesh, as it were. A question that I have, though, is that you, in addition to that work, you've also been very active in a in a sort of parallel community, which is the British Association of Modernist Studies, and you've recently just got involved with the Modernist Review, which is its principal online outlet. Could you say a little bit about that side of things? What have you found most interesting and most sort of engaging about that kind of work? Yeah, of course.
1: Um, so the Modernist Review is uh, the British Association for Modernist Studies online platform, which is a monthly roundup of modernist culture. It's inspired by the work um, undertaken by Deborah Cohen, with um, who's one of my favorite scholars ever, uh, on Modernism Modernity's kind of print plus platform of getting out shorter pieces, which are quicker and more accessible and it's run by myself and currently uh, Gareth uh, Mills, um, previously by Stephanie Boland, Helen Saunders and uh, Ruth Clemens, um, who was the postgraduate representative of me until recently. The idea behind it is to give postgraduate voices specifically uh, a platform to discuss their research in an oversaturated community. Publishing in journals as a PhD is becoming more and more necessary and harder and harder because of that. There are only so many journals and as I'm saying this I'm sure you can all think of the journals in your field which are seen as important and crucial to publish in but many journals have like more than a year or two years backlog already Um, and so it's very hard to develop your writing skills, it's hard to get feedback and it's hard to get your name out there as a younger scholar and that's becoming so important because of precarity. So What we're attempting to do here is by no means uh, create a parallel to a journal, but create a, a training ground and an interesting, quick space where academics who are still kind of in their nascent or green stages and academics who are further into their career, should they wish to write for us, can share their work, get feedback quickly, develop their writing skills and put their name out there. It's really important to me and the other postgraduate representatives that I work with that we provide Firm feedback. We really dig into what people are saying and make sure that kind of they're helped with their writing style because often you don't get that so much, Um, and that they actually have somewhere that they can kind of share work that's really exciting that they're finding in the archives or they've become suddenly interested in or are kind of finding their way with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really virtuous and sort of valuable thing that you're doing. And again, in another parallel, it seems to reflect off of a work... This is the most meta part of this, <laughs> where we talk about the Modernist podcast, which is an, yet another initiative that you, you've you set up um, and is going very, very well, and you've got a lot of contributors to it. Could you say a little bit about that project? What drew you to podcasting in the context of modernist studies specifically?
1: You say it's virtuous, and I thank you for saying that, but I would probably say it's more necessary, actually, at this point um, for... PhDs to be setting up these alternate systems because uh, largely for people in the younger stages of their career the systems are are broken. Um, Journals are broken, uh, academia is broken, we all know that by now. Um, It's not working and it's especially difficult if you aren't already kind of in a permanent position or working your way towards one. And so there is a level of kind of selfishness behind uh, me setting up the Modernist podcast which is that I really wanted to have my own voice heard and the voices of my friends heard um, and luckily people listened and that meant that it got to develop into a kind of wider experience and a wider kind of digital platform for modernist scholars to uh, share their work um, and I'm really happy and grateful to everyone that has tuned in. We now have 16,000 listeners, uh, I think around 14 episodes and four minisodes. We have another six planned and then it will finish. Um, I now have referred to it as a three-year digital humanities project because that's what it's stemmed into. But it really was born out of um, a feeling of necessity, a feeling of having to set something up that allowed postgraduates to get their voices out there when their voices are very, very necessary to their careers and the market is too competitive to have their voices heard a lot of the time. I wanted to create an alternate space where people could show how brilliant they are and have that done quickly and not have to wait three years to have a journal article published um, to kind of make their mark in a different way because we're having to do that at earlier and earlier stages of our careers now. So thank you for calling it virtuous. I would call it perhaps a little bit selfish but also uh, wholly necessary and I'm massively in support of anyone else doing kind of similar projects such as this one
0: yeah i mean i think i completely agree with you in the sense that, that there needs to be a a new kind of adaptability and a new form of response to rapidly changing conditions on the one hand for young and emerging scholars which is matched by a professional framework which is sort of decades out of uh, date, you know, it, it no longer maps onto the realities of today, and yet the power structures that it has put in place are still applied very forcefully sometimes. So I think in that sense it's a it's a very admirable and valuable way of trying to find a way through that thicket. So having done that work podcasting on the Modernist Podcast have you found that there has been any kind of feedback from the Modernist Podcast and and the sort of the skills that that requires back into the PhD work? Has there been a sort of a return for you personally from having spoken about all of these topics with all of these different people?
1: This is a really really good question and it's not one I've been asked before and so that's very exciting. Um, but yes, and I want to say mainly that it's been wonderful to be introduced to so many different kinds of scholars. So. Normally, even within modernist studies, we are siloed into kind of our our smaller communities, so Wolf-Joyce, queer modernism, um, and we don't get to hear about the wonderful work that everyone else is doing. What's so beautiful and bountiful about sitting down with other scholars and talking to them is them saying, have you heard of this person? Have you heard of this person? As this person says. And no, I haven't, but then I've got to hear about them. So I get to explore facets and corners of the field that I wouldn't have heard of if I wasn't working like that and I'm thinking here specifically of work um, undertaken by uh, Hannah McGregor, uh, Dr. Hannah McGregor. She is uh, based in Canada at Simon Fraser University, and she hosts two podcasts, um, Witch Please and Secret Feminist Agenda, which are, for in different ways, academic uh, podcasts discussing kind of feminist theory, uh, Witch Please with Marcel Cosman, and the communities that han mcgregor has managed to create really generate this amazing dialogue between scholars and i think if i could model an eighth of that uh, on the modernist podcast then i'd be very happy because what it's allowed me to do is to discover new modes of thinking new ways of saying things new uh, arguments to riff off of new dialogues to enter into and that's what it's given me most of always. It's enriched my PhD, my learning, and just my kind of base of ideas through talking to so many different people. And I think if anyone wants to think about why that is important, I would direct them towards uh, an article that, Uh, dr Alex Beeston wrote recently for uh, modernism modernity um which is all about her kinds of citational practice and why she cites so frequently in her work um, and in her monograph because she wants to show kind of the um legacy that her work is tapping into and therefore the originality of that work um and i would also kind of think here of um the kind of practice of uh, radical citation which is being pushed by Shauna Ross at the moment which is the idea of citing things that we don't normally think of citing, citing emails from grad students, citing blog posts from grad students in order to create a wider dialogue about what is important to our scholarship Watch voices we 're including, and who we 're getting to hear, so for me it 's been important because i 'm getting to hear more people, but it 's also allowed me to think about how can we push that further? How can we make sure that people are heard more, how can we amplify people 's voices?
0: Well, that seems like a wonderfully kind of optimistic and forward thinking and progressive point at which to end, unfortunately because we we 're almost out of time. But before we do end, I just wanted to ask you if you're reading anything at the moment that you're enjoying and that you'd be willing to share with those listening.
1: So, yeah, at the moment, um, I've just finished Neapolitan Quartet by Frante, which I would recommend anyone to read because it's absolutely fantastic. Um, And apart from that, I want to kind of give, I guess, a shout out or recommendation to um, uh, a graduate student poet whose poetry I think is fantastic. It's uh, Travis Chi-Wing Lau, um, who's an American postgraduate student and I just think his poetry is fantastic. I found him via Twitter, and I just think he's absolutely wonderful, so I'd recommend reading his poetry. You can find him on Twitter. Sean Richardson, thank you very much. Cheers.